and welcome. I'm Dr. Christina Spaulding, and this is the Research Bites podcast brought to you by Science Matters Academy of Animal Behavior. We foster conversations about science and its application to animal training and behavior in an effort to improve well-being for animals and the people they live with. Please enjoy geeking out about the science of behavior. Before we jump into the content for today, I just want to let you guys know about two things that are coming up in the near future that you may be interested in. The first one is the December episode of Research Bites. And each December, I do what I call a year in review, which means I go in and I look at research that has provided updates or was inspired by papers that we have covered in the past. And then I review those. So December is a really nice month because what we end up doing is having a broad overview of a lot of the research that has come out in the last year. So it's a great place to jump in because it lays a nice foundation for papers that we're likely to talk about next year. So that is coming up on Tuesday, December 13th. The other thing I have coming up right at the beginning of the year is my advanced consulting practicum. And this is a really unique opportunity. You will be meeting with myself and three or four other students once a week just to discuss cases. This is really for behavior consultants that are already at an intermediate or an advanced level and are looking for specific feedback and input on their current cases. We meet once a week for an hour for six months. And really, we just talk about cases. There's not a lot of homework other than making sure that you're prepared for the discussion each week. So this is a really wonderful opportunity to take your uh, behavior skills and knowledge to the next level. Because this is such a small group, this does require an application process. So you can go to my website to get more information on that. And the first class will be meeting on Thursday, January 5th at 3 p.m. Eastern time. So if you're interested in the advanced consulting practicum or in Research Bytes, you can visit my website at www.sciencemattersllc.com and the link will also be in the show notes for you. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome back. I'm just going to do a quick podcast today. I want to give you guys a couple updates about the status of the podcast, uh, and then we're going to spend some time talking about something called cognitive flexibility. So I am, things have been quiet for a little while. What I've been doing is really been busy scheduling interviews, and those should be getting going very soon. So keep an eye out. Uh, probably around January sometime I will start releasing interviews again. And I think I have a new system in place that will allow me to do it 
uh, or have new interviews and podcast episodes regularly throughout 2023. So I will update you if that changes again, but that's where things are at right now. And while we are waiting for those interviews to be released, I just wanted to jump in and talk to you about something that I have been particularly interested in lately, and that is cognitive flexibility. So cognitive flexibility is one aspect of cognition. And as usual, there are a few different ways of defining it, but I am partial to the definition that Francesca Gelfo at Guillermo Marconi University in Rome uses. And she states that cognitive flexibility is, quote, the ability to shift associations and attentional sets in order to respond properly to the changing environmental conditions and demands. Namely, Cognitive flexibility is the ability to change behavior when environmental conditions change, end quote. That last part is the part that strikes me the most. Cognitive flexibility is the ability to change behavior when environmental conditions change. So if we pause for a second and think about what stress is, Remember that stress is what happens when the animal is confronted with a challenge or some kind of change. So essentially, stress is the process of responding and adapting to change. And if cognitive flexibility gives animals the ability to change their behavior when the environment changes, Essentially, what that means is it's enhancing an animal's ability to cope with stress. So that is ultimately why I am interested in cognitive flexibility. And I'm going to go over a couple of papers to just give you some idea of the kinds of things that cognitive flexibility can be associated with. So uh, there's a paper by Gokin and colleagues that was published in 2020. This was done in Turkey on university students. And they found that there was a relationship between uh, increased cognitive flexibility and increased patience. And the reason that I think that this is important for the work that we do is that I see a lot of dogs that have behavior issues really struggling with frustration tolerance. And to me, patience requires good frustration tolerance, right? I know that I'm making a few leaps, uh, but sometimes we do that because we don't have the research to fill in the gaps. So uh, I'm just sort of making a cautious leap and a, making a connection between having patience and also having uh, good frustration tolerance. And I think that frustration tolerance can often, or rather frustration intolerance can often lead to behavior issues, particularly those associated with hyperactivity and impulsivity. Another study by uh, Kalia and Nafel 
uh, also published in 2020, looked at the relationship between adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and cognitive flexibility and perceived stress. So adverse childhood experiences occur um, when children experience really high levels of stress or distress when they are growing up. And we know that the number of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs that people were exposed to during development is associated with an increased risk of mental health disorders. So this particular study found that the higher the number of ACEs that someone had, the less cognitive flexibility they displayed as adults. They also found that uh, perceived stress, so higher levels of perceived stress, were associated with decreased cognitive flexibility. So again, what we're saying here is that there seems to be a link between decreased cognitive flexibility and the ability to cope with stress. So when we're talking about perceived stress, remember that the way that an individual experiences stress is going to depend on their ability to cope with that stress. So if you don't have a good ability to cope with stress, then your perception of stress is going to be higher than someone maybe who is going through uh, the same type of experience but has better access to coping skills for whatever reason. Something else that I thought was really important, this is really kind of a side note, but I thought this was very interesting and worth sharing. They also found that people who were able to um, reappraise the situation reported decreased levels of stress. And so what that means is that individuals that were able to change their goal or change how they perceived the situation reported decreased levels of stress. A quote from the paper defines cognitive appraisal as an individual altering or updating the way they think about or frame an event to enhance or reduce its emotional impact. Now we're talking about people here. And the reason I'm focusing so much on people is because there's really been relatively little research on cognitive flexibility in dogs. Um, there has been some research done on other species. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast today. But you know, I think this is such an interesting idea, right? Is can we change, basically what we're talking about, again, is changing the way the individual perceives the stress. And if we can do that, it results in decreased levels of stress or decreased, for those of you that are familiar with the terminology, tolerable or toxic stress. And you know, it makes me start to think about, is this something that we can do with our dogs? Is this what counter conditioning is, for example? If, if we're engaging in counter conditioning, 
isn't that shifting the dog's appraisal of the situation? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I do think it's interesting to think about, and I certainly hope we get more research on this in the future. I also wanted to point out that on the flip side of this is people who showed habitual suppression of their emotions, so hiding or suppressing their emotions, reported increased levels of perceived stress. And I think this is really interesting, not only just from a human perspective and, and you know, people I interact with and, and my own experiences, but if we look at a lot of punishment-based training, a lot of punishment-based training can have the impact of suppressing emotions, right? Or teaching the animal to hide their observable expression of those emotions. And this study suggests that the result of that is increasing stress. And so there you have this dynamic, right, where you may be decreasing the outward expression of emotions, but that does not necessarily mean that the emotions themselves are changing and may in fact indicate or lead to increased levels of stress, which could actually increase the risk of uh, a bite or make the behavior issue worse in the long run. So I just thought those were worth noting, even though they don't necessarily deal directly with cognitive flexibility. So the next thing I want to do is spend some time talking about neuroplasticity. And a lot of this is taken from the paper by Francesca Gelfo, which I uh, quoted from at the very beginning of the podcast today. And she talks about the relationship between cognitive flexibility, neuroplasticity, and enrichment. And uh, I will put a link to this paper in the podcast notes in case you guys are interested in reading about this further. So cognitive flexibility requires neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity refers to the ability of the brain to change as a result of experience. In other words, to change as a result of learning. We now know that even as adults, the brain can be quite flexible or quite plastic and can change the number of neurons and the connections between neurons and the functionality of neurons. So a study from 2017 by Anneker and Hen found that in humans, there are about 700 new neurons that are added to the hippocampus every single day. This is in middle-aged humans, so not children that are developing. So, you know, th there's millions of neurons in the brain, but still to me, 700 new neurons a day seems like an awful lot. Uh, and that's good news. Well, it can be good news, right? Because it, the addition of those new neurons opens the door for new pathways, which ultimately can lead to new behaviors. Uh, of course, it can go in either direction, right? So just the 
fact that there's new pathways and new behaviors doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be behaviors that are beneficial to the animal. But I thought it was interesting. So the areas of the brain are divided into different areas um, or different sections. And so there's different sections of the hippocampus. And one section, the dorsal hippocampus, is very important for context learning and spatial memory. So spatial memory has to do with navigating through our environment. But there's another section of the hippocampus called the ventral hippocampus. And this part of the hippocampus is important for emotional behavior. And that includes things like anxiety, social interactions, and stress resilience. We also know um, that, well, I shouldn't say we know, but there's some evidence that suggests that uh, there may be more neurons added to the ventral hippocampus than the dorsal hippocampus on average. This is also the area of the hippocampus that can be damaged by chronic stress, although both areas, so chronic stress can also impact uh, context learning, for example. You may know that chronic stress damages the hippocampus. And so that can impact both context learning as well as things like stress resilience and anxiety. We also know that, that the hippocampus connects to the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex plays a really important role in things like self-control and emotional regulation. And the hippocampus also projects to a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which plays an important role in reward and pleasure, but also stress resilience and stress vulnerability. And the reason I'm giving you all of this information is just to illustrate that, you know, we have this data that tells us that the hippocampus remains changeable into adulthood. And the hippocampus itself is important for things like context learning, anxiety, and stress resilience. And it interacts with other brain areas that are also important for those things, as well as self-control and emotional regulation. And so the fact that the hippocampus is still changeable in adult animals, and I gave you data from humans, but we also know that the hippocampus is changeable in, in other mammals like uh, rodents, for example. So if that's the case, that, that just means like that gives us hope, right? So even though this dog is an adult, its brain still has the ability to change based on experience. And it's possible that we're going to be able to reroute some of those pathways in the brain or create new connections that help the animal have higher levels of stress resilience. So this all leads to this idea that neuroplasticity plays an important role in protecting against cognitive decline. This can be cognitive decline due to aging or cognitive decline due to some kind of stress, trauma, or uh, injury or disease. And their researchers identify three different categories of protection. So first you have the brain reserve, which is the actual structure of the brain. So having 
an increased brain reserve means there's more neurons, more connections uh, between neurons. So you can think of this as a system of roads. How many roads are there interconnecting um, different parts of the brain? Then you have the neural reserve, which refers to how efficient is the communication between neurons. So how easy is it to get from point A to point B? And then finally, you have the cognitive reserve. And this refers to sort of the levels of cognitive flexibility and the animal's ability to compensate uh, for any deficits that they may have. And again, this helps animals cope with stress and change. So we know that genetics contributes to these differences. I am not going to focus a lot on genetics here simply because it's not my area of specialty. It has nothing to do with how important it is. But instead, I'm going to talk about the influence that enrichment can have uh, on neuroplasticity. So we know that social interactions, cognitive challenge, and physical exercise and a healthy diet can all impact an animal's resilience. So these things kind of combine together or can combine together to counteract or reduce the impacts of developmental stress. So if you look at animal studies in enrichment, uh, what you see is that enrichment increases cognition or improves cognition and also shows uh, positive benefits to behavior. So in think in terms of things like decreased fear and anxiety, for example. And if you're wondering what enrichment means, what kind of enrichment they're talking about, they're talking about things like placing these animals in larger social groups, uh, enriching their environment, so giving them a variety of things to interact with in their cages uh, and changing those things up on a regular basis and also making sure that they have access to a healthy diet and opportunities for physical exercise. So those kinds of enrichment improve cognition, they improve the efficiency and structure of the brain, and they also seem to improve the animal's ability to cope with challenging situations. So here again is another quote from the Jelfo paper, and she says, the enriched animals show enhanced capacity to efficiently respond to the challenging situations proposed in the behavior tasks by utilizing high level strategies in the performance. So basically it's saying that they have a really more advanced ability to cope with the things around them. So some of the effects of environmental enrichment on behavior are decreased anxiety, decreased levels of stereotypical behavior, uh, improved cognition, as I already mentioned, uh, improved problem solving, increased wound healing. Uh, so stress can suppress the immune system. So if you have improved wound healing, that indicates lower levels of stress or toxic stress. Uh, and decreased emotional reactivity. And there's also signs that animals are more optimistic. We talk about enrichment a lot, and we promote enrichment a lot in the animals that we work with. But I hope that this information from today provides you with some more concrete evidence for one of the reasons 
why enrichment is so important. And basically, the, the main take-home point here is that enrichment seems like it improves an animal's cognitive flexibility, which in turn is likely to improve their ability to cope with stress, which in turn is likely to improve their quality of life and decrease the likelihood and or intensity of behavior issues. So that's why we care about cognitive flexibility. And one of the ways that we can potentially improve it is through enrichment. Thank you for listening to the Research Bites podcast. If you enjoyed this content and would like to learn more, please visit www.sciencemattersllc.com for more information. You can also find the link in the podcast description. The website has information on upcoming events, as well as my monthly research webinars and upcoming courses. I hope to see you there. Thank you.